Hello and uh, welcome back to LA. I've been traveling a lot recently. I've been in the Netherlands. I was in Ireland and the UK and Ohio as well actually. Um, and now I'm back for a week uh, back home and then I'm literally here for six days and then I fly off to Australia and New Zealand. I think it's the middle of the night there so um, I doubt any of you are listening from uh, that part of the world but if you are I'm doing some events there and I hope I can kind of meet you and hang out. Uh, one of the reasons why I was in Ireland is that I was preparing for my wake festival every year I do a little festival with 50 people from all over the world and they come to Belfast, Northern Ireland and we spend four days, really five because there's like a pre-event drinks, um, hanging out, conspiring together. There's live music, there's art, pub crawls, uh, lots of uh, reflections uh, on theology. And um, I was just kind of doing a little bit of work on that while I was home, uh, as well as seeing family and friends. Uh, I hope some of you will uh, will end up in Ireland um, at some point. I know some of you have. Uh, some people are saying hi. There's uh, uh, Stephen from Copenhagen. Hey, how's it going? There's Phil and Ryan in Ohio. Uh, very cool. Ryan, were you there for the um, Lakeside Chakwa? I can't. I can't even say the word. Uh, Shatakwa, Shatakwa, there you go. I remember it because I used the Seamus for Sha, I remember that, and Ta for talk, Shatakwa, so that's how I remember that. Um, anyway, uh, today I wanted to um, talk a little bit about the technology of theology. Um, and actually, I realised that as, when I was about to come on that I've got lots that I want to say about that. Um, we're only going to be able to like skim the surface. Uh, but uh, so I might do like three parts, maybe four parts on this topic. And uh, if I can, I'll do them all in a row, like do one tomorrow, one the day after. I, I should really have a schedule for this, but I don't because I'm not a very scheduled kind of person. Um, but yeah, so the, theolo the technology of theology, and, and the word we give to that is liturgy. Liturgy is the technology of theology. Um, now, most disciplines uh, have this distinction between theory and technology. Uh, for example, you have, you know, in psycho psychoanalysis, you have the theor theory, which is an exploration of drives, unconscious desire, uh, and the unconscious itself. So you've got theories of the subject, and then you have the text sitting on the couch, engaged in transference and projection and whatever. Uh, in um, uh, in biology, you have uh, you know people who are just exploring the body, exploring the biological system, and then you have the technologies that come from that. You have surgeries. You have veterinary clinics or whatever, um, or take chemistry. You have people who are interested in the chemical composition of, of life. Uh, and then you have the technology, which is seen in, in medicines. Uh, this, this goes across the board, even in mathematics. You have people who are just interested purely in the theory of math. Uh, and then you have those who apply it uh, to uh, create bridges, um, buildings, and planes. So theology is similar in the sense that it has a certain theoretical side to it and it has a practical side to it um, and these are deeply deeply important 
in my own work in radical theology, the theoretical side is called pyrotheology, and the technological side is called transformance art. And actually, a lot of new people have been following my work recently. Um, I think it's because I've been doing uh, more podcasts uh, with people like Rob Bell and Pete Holmes. So some of you have been following my work for a long time and you know a fair amount of the theory, um, but some of you are quite new to it. Uh, but hopefully this will still kind of make some sort of sense. Uh, so the theory is pyrotheology, the technology is transformance art. Um, so the whole point is, you know, once a week, twice a week, three times a week, uh, in traditional churches, for example, people come together and they do an activity. And the activity is, uh, in a sense, designed to form us and reform us, uh, hopefully transform us as individuals and as participants in wider society. Um, in the same way that in psychoanalysis, you might go once, twice or three times a week. Yeah, Christianity has built into it this, you know, repetition, this, this thing that you do, this thing that you do. So I want to talk about um, what I think liturgy at its best is about in the, in the tradition of radical theology. And as I say, I'm going to, you know, do three or four Facebook lives about this. So we'll start with a, a very simple idea, um, which uh, uh, I say it's a simple idea and now I'm hesitating as to how to say it. Um, Okay, uh, you know, if, if you talk to people within the church, often you'll find within some churches people say, well, you know, we embrace questioning, we embrace unknowing, uncertainty, right? You know, it, pretty much everybody does, you know, where, wherever you go, even conservative churches, liberal churches, orthodox, there's a certain place for mystery, for not having all the answers, for acknowledging that we are human, all too human. Um, it can be called... Um, epistemic humility, um, just this idea that we don't, we don't know everything. But depending on where you go, the amount that you can question is either a little or a lot. You know, you might go somewhere and they say, well, yeah, you can question certain readings of the Bible or certain understandings of the world. But, you know, this is the stuff that you need if you're going to call yourself a Christian or if you're going to call yourself a Muslim or a Buddhist or whatever it is. You know, there's, this, is, this is the kind of stuff that you need to believe. So, some people go, there's a little bit of questioning, and then there's a big bunch of stuff that you have to have. Some places go, actually, you know what, there's a whole pile of stuff you can question, and there's only a little bit that you have to kind of, like, you know, believe. Uh, so it might be 10%, or it might be 90%. But all of these communities agree that there's something that you have to hold on to, because otherwise you would fall into complete relativism you know everything it would be like you wouldn't believe anything how would you know anything why would you go out and try and help the poor <clears throat> why would you get out of bed in the morning you know what makes you know helping your neighbor any better than just playing computer games all day right so that all makes sense and sounds kind of <clears throat> sounds plausible but there's a, a different way to think of it uh and paul Tillich draws this out where he says what if we have to embrace both absolute relativism, you know, complete relativism, you know, there's, there's nothing that you can believe without questioning, doubting, rethinking, right? And at the same time, there is something that is absolutely indubitable, a rock that, that, is, that is so firm that you just can't really do anything about it without being inauthentic to yourself and to the world. And, and what he means by this is he says, well, the thing that is the rock 
<clears throat> that you cannot deny without denying something fundamental about yourself and your place in the world is the absolute subjectivity of the other. That the other is not an object. That the other is a subject. Um, now, Sartre says this very well when he says, hell is other people. He, what he means by that is kind of this idea that I feel like I'm the centre of my universe. I am a subject and I'm surveying everything around me. I am the Lord and Master of all. But then I'm sitting in a park looking at everything and someone turns and they look at me. I see their eyes, they gaze at me and I am dethroned. I am, I am made into an object for another, right? So they're looking at me. So uh, Sartre has lots of good examples of this, like spying through a keyhole and then the people you're spying on turn around and look at you and they see your eye through the keyhole and suddenly you're like, oh, freaked out. Um, this is, in a sense, a confrontation with the other as a subject. At first, you're looking at them as objects, you know, getting this pleasure from seeing them do something. But then when they look at you, you experience briefly their subjectivity. And so it's, it's kind of hellish. It's like, oh my goodness, I'm not the lord of everything. Um, and Sartre says we try to avoid this, you know, either with sadism, and sadism is where we reduce others to an object, or masochism, where we reduce ourselves to an object. But these are different ways of avoiding subjectivity. But for Tillich, you can't do that. Every subject is an absolute other that makes an infinite demand on us. When we go out into the world, there is a sense in which other individuals cry out to us that they are subjects that cannot be reduced to mere objects for our use. Emmanuel Levinas says this beautifully when he, he writes, the face of the other cries, do not murder me. The face of the other cries, do not murder me. So that's the kind of the absolute. And the reason why for Tillich that's an absolute is he says like, if, if you deny the subjectivity of the other, you are doing something that's inauthentic. You are doing something that is, that is kind of like uh, destructive to you and to the other person, to the world. Um, it's denying something fundamental um, that you are not the center of the universe. But then he says, what you do with that, you have to take responsibility for, right? That's, you cannot put that responsibility on someone else, some tradition, some authority, some uh, tarot cards or fortune teller or prophecy or anything like that. And, and we all want to. And this is why Sartre used the term condemned to freedom. He says, it's not we're liberated in freedom. He says, in a sense, there's a condemnation to freedom, which is that when we experience our own responsibility in the world, it's terrifying. We are responsible for what we do, uh, for what we don't do, and for trying to avoid both of these entirely. We're responsible for everything, including our irresponsibility. Now, by that, he doesn't mean this is not the freedom determinism debate, which we could talk about elsewhere. This is about taking responsibility for one's life and actions. It's a centering activity where you take responsibility. Um, I think I might have talked about this elsewhere, but you know, Sartre has a beautiful example where this young guy comes to him and says, you know, my mother is elderly and I feel like I should look after her. But also it's the first world war um, you know, uh, France is under attack. I feel like I need to join, you know, the, the army and fight against 
the, the Germans. And he's looking to Sartre to give him an answer of what to do, whether he plays a very big part of something small or a very small part of something big. And, you know, Sartre uses this as a way of going, well, I think you're scared of taking responsibility for acting, that there is nothing I could say which will, you know, take away your responsibility to decide what you do and to take responsibility for the consequences of that decision. And whether someone considers themselves religious or not, uh, we all fear this. I mean, again, I live in L.A. It's supposedly, you know, a very secular place. But on every other street corner, there's a fortune teller. And a lot of the people who I know who go to fortune tellers don't really believe in it. They don't really, you know, they don't, they're not kind of convinced there's some sort of person out there who can see the future. But a lot of people are still compelled to go because they don't know whether break up with someone or stay going out with someone. And in one sense, we want someone else to tell us what to do so that we can blame them and not take responsibility for ourselves. Now, in relation to the technology of theology, radical theology, in terms of power of theology, is trying to say we need to sensitize ourselves to the absolute subjectivity of the other, especially those who have no subjectivity symbolically in our society. So this is, who are, the, who are those who are given no symbolic value, who are, who are not seen as subjects? you're not seen at all. So how do we sensitize us uh, to, to them? Um, and then also <laughs> taking full responsibility for what we do in light of that demand. Uh, not going that, oh, this simple answer, that's how we do it, because God told me, or the fortune teller told me, or the stars told me. But going, you know what, I don't quite know what I have to do, but I, I have to do something. And I have to take responsibility for that. So within the church, I argue that the spaces like Icon, the community I, I was part of, was an attempt to use poetry and art and music, uh, comedy, uh, the sermon, um, in order to sensitize us to the, to the infinite subjectivity of the other and how they make a demand on us. And at the same time, deconstructing any simple and easy answers. Not so that people no longer knew what to do, but really to say you have to do something. So for example, we call this suspended space. So it was a performative act. You go, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, Republican nor Democrat, for one hour in this space. Now, it wasn't true because there's always, you know, Republicans, Democrats, male, female, white, black, uh, 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 pacifist, uh, you know, whatever, you know, there's, there's lots of identities that we have and, you know, you can't just, you can't strip them off. Um, but there's a certain sense in which when you enter into what's called the epoche, this, this preferred, this liturgy, you try to see the subject beyond all of their Republican or Democrat, uh, Catholic or Protestant, whatever identities. Not that you ignore them, and you say they're not there, but you see them as a subject, as a as a as a subject with as a subject with infinite value. And then what happens is when you leave the liturgical space, you take up your identities again. You know, in the sense of you, you, you know, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, and you fight. 
But now you don't fight as enemies because you've encountered each other um, in that space where you've seen the person as a subject. And so even if you disagree with them and disagree with them vehemently and fight them vehemently, and that's very, very important, uh, you know, that we engage in passionate discussions, they are based around a shared belief in the absolute value of the other and the need to respond to that in some sort of way. Um, and, you know, it's, yeah, so this is, this is, this is one of the, the rules, I think, of, of liturgical space. And one of the ways we did this in, in ICON is we had the group called the Evangelism Project, and many of you know about this, so I'll be very quick, but uh, we went to be evangelized by other groups, uh, other communities. Uh, we went to the Islamic Society, the Jewish community, um, the Humanist Society, and we asked them to talk about what they believe and, and who they are. We encountered them as subjects, as individuals. But the evangelism didn't happen then. The evangelism happened when we said to them, what do we look like to you? What is it like to be a Muslim in Belfast? What does the Christian community look like from your perspective? And then you see yourself through the other's eyes and you see things maybe that you don't want to see. And you're evangelized. You're you know, brought deeper into your, your tradition and, and, and sensitized. So the Evangelism Project was an attempt to see the other as a subject that makes a demand on us and at the same time then saying, so what are we going to do about it without having some sort of simplistic answer? Um, a question I often get uh, that's related to this is um, people will often say to me, well, you know, how should I bring up my kids? Uh, should I bring them up in Christianity and, you know, give them the stories and do the Sunday school stuff and they hear, hear all the Bible questions and, and then when they're older they'll deconstruct it, they'll question it, they'll find their own space. Do I do that or do I not? Um, and you know one of the, the ideas behind this is that Christianity is this belief system. It's a set of stories and ideas and principles and morals. Right? So should I teach my child that? You know, Because sometimes if you teach it then you, know, you have to deconstruct it and it becomes its own problem. What do you do? But if you think of Christianity and the stories in the Bible as very often uh, about questioning um, who we think is pure and impure, who we think is inside and outside, and they're about cultivating a sensitivity in us to the outsider, to those who are not given a voice, to those who are seen as mere objects to use and cast aside. And we see that, you know, like the story of the Good Samaritan, it's questioning all of the things that people took for granted about who was good and who was bad, who was just some person to, to cast aside and who was worth something. And it problematizes that. Or the tax collector and the Pharisee, which at the time was again questioning our ideas of who is a subject, who is valuable and who is not. If you think of Christianity as that, then in a sense, the answer, I think, is to simply say, well, we want to bring up our children and, uh, in, a, in a way that cultivates a sensitivity to the other and our, to our demand, the demand that is made upon us by the other. And, that's, and, and so you can use the Christian tradition or any other tradition, whatever, but to do that. So when you're taking some of these stories the idea is not like teaching them the story. It's, it's that what is going on within the story? What is happening? And, um, you know, in, in light of the subject I'm looking at today, so many of these parables and so many of these stories 
are designed to really cultivate a love of our neighbour and cultivate a sensitivity to the call of that neighbour on our being. And so the liturgical space is where for one hour of our week we encounter the subject. And that might be bringing someone in who is seen as an outsider and letting them speak or having music that draws out some of the, the political issues that we're dealing with in, in our various cultures. Um, having prayers that draw out um, our responsibility to the other and sometimes our lack of care for the other. And so this is part of what you do. And why, why bother doing this once a week or twice a week? Um, just because otherwise we will become, we'll, we'll probably become desensitized. Over time, we, we walk around, we're very prone to treat people as objects. We're very prone to give in to that part of ourselves that wants to simplify, demonize, uh, put all of the, the badness on somebody else and kind of like, you know, you know see ourselves as pure. Or we might want to just, you know, check out of society um, and, and live a, a very insular and depressed life. But if we go to a space regularly that tries to draw us out of that into a more three-dimensional type of life, um, a life in which we hear the call of the other, which you can think of as the call of the divine, the call of the other on us, um, this is beneficial not just for us as individuals and, or for us in our families or for us in our relationships, but also for us in our wider society. Um, we can be uh, a force for good. So, okay, that's, that's the first thing I want to cover. Sorry, the bin men are outside, so um, there's a little bit of noise. Um, I'll have a look over, see if you've got any questions or thoughts or comments on, on any of that. Um, and then tomorrow, I think I want to look at um, rituals that help us run from our pain and suffering unknowing and rituals that help us enter into those things. And... Uh, I'm obviously an advocate of the latter. Okay, let's see. Uh, uh, lots of people from all over the world. Um, oh, someone likes the jacket. You like it? That's good. It's it's uh it's my. I I always wear like wearing jackets, but LA is too hot, so this is like the lightest jacket I have. Um, sounds like boober. I and die says. Uh, Zach, yeah, there, there's definitely connections with Martin Buber, the, the German, uh, or sorry, the, yeah, I think he was, German Jewish mystic. Uh, let's see. Uh, Phil says, is part of it also trying to see ourselves as someone else's other and or their object? Um, is part of it also trying to see ourselves as someone else's other Yes, if I, if I hear you correctly, one of the reasons why we do the evangelism project, and this is, by the way, if you do the evangelism project once, it's just going to be an interesting day, but if you do this once a month, it begins to be a transformative experience, you know, transforms who you are and, and, and hopefully cultivates a sensitivity in your life. Um, in, in many ways, we want to see our, how we are ourselves perceived. And so there is a sense in which, but, but for, for Levinas, it, our, the infinite responsibility is always ours. He has this asymmetrical thing where he says, we're all responsible for each other, but I am more responsible than everybody else. 
Now, of course, if everybody thought like that, it would be kind of a wonderful world. But yeah, Levinas is very into, and people, some people critique him for this, but he's very into the idea that, that from my perspective, I need to encounter the subjectivity of the other. And, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not that responsible for how people objectify me. Um, but there's, there's, you know, there's lots of, you know, that's kind of, uh, I think I think there's problems with that and, and whatever. But what I like about what he's saying is he's saying that, you know, the, the responsibility starts here with us, um, and you know how we treat how we treat the other. Uh, Alicia says, "Thanks, Pete. As a therapist, I always appreciate your ideas. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, keep me thinking, going deeper. Oh yeah. Oh, you're just being nice. So I, I don't like reading out comments because it makes it look like oh someone said something nice about me. Everybody listen to this. <laughs> but I very much appreciate it." Um, thank you. Uh, let's see. Is somebody saying, uh, I can't pronounce your name, sorry. R-E-H-E-S-A. Would that be Risa? Risa? Rish? Oh, um, I'm very bad at pronouncing names. I was in the Netherlands uh, last week and it was I was a disaster. Unbelievable. I'm afraid that sometimes to take responsibility is to interrupt somebody's absolute subjectivity. Since that very subjectivity begs for help, I'm afraid that sometimes to take responsibility, which you take. Sorry, I got cut off there. I'm afraid that sometimes to take responsibility is to interrupt someone's absolute subjectivity. Since that very subjectivity begs for help. If I hear you right, are you saying that yeah, when you take responsibility, you are interfering with people's lives in a sense. You're getting involved in the messiness of the world, and that can that can go wrong. I don't know if that's what you're saying, but if that's what you're saying, I think that's part of yeah, this absolute responsibility is when you decide to act, this is the problem is you might mess up. And, and not acting, you might mess up. It's like there is no safety. That's the condemnation of freedom that's so terrifying for us is that we might end up being the enemy, doing something terrible. Now, at that point, we have to have the courage to face up to that, to take responsibility and to say, yeah, I tried to be helpful, but you know what? I was naive. Like every 17-year-old who does a mission trip or whatever, you know? He's like, you go in there and you've got the best of intentions and hopefully you don't mess up too much and sometimes you mess up a lot and ultimately you kind of take responsibility for that. And if you know what, if you do a good job, you can, you know, pat yourself in the back, buy a beer and relax for, for an hour. But but there is, there is no way to protect ourselves from... Um, from from the, the 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 things that can arise from acting or not acting in the world. Um, okay, let me see. There's a question there. I saw that looked good. Um, okay, are you not afraid that you can come across as patronising when asking to be evangelised to? Yeah, I mean, you could do like when the, in in truth, how we ran the evangelism project is we would just you know contact some group and say, you know, this is a group of people, you know, largely from the Christian community, and we would love to kind of learn um, a little bit about humanism or Jewish tradition or Islamic tradition. But also, we're really interested in seeing, um, you know, uh, what we look like um, from your perspective. You know, we as in the Christian community in Belfast, in Northern Ireland, what's been your experiences of that? Um, and actually, you know, in practice, I don't, I can't think of any time that it didn't work. And we did this for years and years and years, once a month. 
Um, we also did the Last Supper, which is another version. We invited someone to come and talk to us who was likely coming from a different place. And if we didn't like what they said, it was their Last Supper, hence the Last Supper. Yeah. But they were the seat of Christ. You know, so we sat them symbolically in the seat of Christ and we were there to listen. And um, no, it, it usually, my experience was it really developed close links. I remember one time after we went to, uh, we invited this humanist uh, guy to the Last Supper, they then asked me to do a talk at the Humanist Society, which was kind of rare for them to take an interest in anybody kind of with a religious philosophy. Um, and then they asked me to be on a debate with them against a Christian group uh, um, at the Queen's University. So it became this really weird, messy kind of mix of back and forth. But yeah, I guess that, that could be a danger. Definitely something to, to watch out for. Um, and Liz writes, How not to struggle with resentment? Uh, it's one thing to set aside the ego, recognise that I'm not really separate from the other, but it's also exhausting. Yeah, no, totally. It's exhausting. And resentment, by the way, is like a, it's an emotion that we're we always in danger of. Nietzsche wrote very, very perceptively of the power and the reach and the depth of resentment in our lives. How it comes up in the weirdest of ways. If a friend does well, we sometimes feel something in ourselves. We're not happy. And we say, oh, I'm so happy for you. You found someone you love. Oh, but somehow you resent them. You know, resentment is a, is a, is a deep thing within us. And, and, you know, part of the liturgy that I'm talking about, um, there's a, I think there's a place for us becoming sensitive to those darker emotions within ourselves and bringing them to the light of day. Um, not so that they control us, but precisely so that they can be let go of. And that will be the topic for uh, tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow, maybe the day after tomorrow, who knows. Um, have I, how long have I been on for? I don't want to be boring you too much. I don't see the time. Um, let's see. I'll finish with this last question from Anderson. Isn't it wrong, though, to try and change others' faith because we think we are right? All paths have a truth. Um, okay, well, so that's getting on to um, yeah, interfaith dialogue and all that kind of stuff. I, for me, because Christianity isn't a worldview for me, it's not a position. Um, it's not then a position. It's not, a, it's not an identity. It's not an identity. So, so faith, and I've explored this elsewhere, faith for me is a way of being in the world. It's not, belief is, is to do with what you think about the world. But faith is a way of engaging with the world. And so that way of engaging with the world can operate anywhere. Paul Tillich calls it ultimate concern. Faith is a way of giving yourself wholly to some aspect of the world um, in a way you know, that you will live and die for the good. And uh, so, yeah, so it, those, those questions don't come up within, obviously, the, the radical theology that I do. Um, but uh, that would be a whole other... Uh, talk which which we should look at I'm sure I've got stuff online about that um, okay uh, I will uh, check out now but just to remind you these these Facebook lives are going to be about the technology of theology which is liturgy just like the technology of psychoanalysis is the theater of the clinic or the technology of physics is seen in you know the development of quantum computers or the technology of chemistry is seen as in, in the development of medicines. Um, philosophy itself is called a technology because it started off as a way of transforming the self. Um, and today I just looked at this idea of 
this space where we are sensitized to the infinite demand of the other as a subject and also our absolute responsibility to act without being able to you know find an absolute answer to why we should do it we have our traditions we have philosophy we do we do have lots of things that help us but nothing that can you know make us avoid responsibility for for the acts or inactions um, of our lives Okay, thank you very much. I'll, uh, I will see you all very soon. Uh, bye.